Who are you? It's a question that resonated with Enlightenment thinkers, one that speaks to human potential. They posited that each person, through personal development and self-expression, was a unique entity with the power to shape themselves, communities, and democracies. What are you? That's a much different question, one that takes us down a different path, delving into the nuances of human diversity. Recognizing our differences helps us make sense of our world, but it's also been a tool for exclusion and division. In this episode, artist Christina Quarles and the poet, playwright, and essayist Sheri Moraga discuss their ideas of individualism. Who are we? Who can we become? And what prevents us from becoming who we believe we're meant to be? Welcome to Edge of Reason. A new limited series podcast produced by Atlantic Rethink, the Atlantic's branded content studio, in partnership with Hauser & Wirth, a global leader in contemporary art. Each week, we'll transcend the boundaries of time and thought, channeling the spirit of the Enlightenment to delve into the obsessions that underpin the work of some of today's leading artists. This week, we speak to Christina Quarles, one of the foremost figurative painters of her generation, whose work delves into the multifaceted dimensions of race, gender, sexuality, and queerness, offering a profound inquiry into the way these aspects intersect and define the individual experience of identity. And joining us also is Sheri Moraga, the writer, teacher, and Chicana lesbian feminist pioneer. For over 40 years, she has been pivotal in making, theorizing, and advancing cultural productions by women of color. Christina, I want to start with you. So you do paintings in which you have limbs and hands and bodies and faces that seem to be reaching through or coming up against uh, planes, uh, boundaries. What led you to begin to make this kind of work? I often will say that my work is portraiture, but I think of them as being portraits really of being within your body and looking out into the world rather than portraits of the way that we think of traditional portraiture, which would be looking usually from the sort of shoulder to head perspective and this way of sort of understanding the external sense of a person. And so in my work, I'm really interested in exploring all the things that you couldn't see really from a snapshot of, of a face and shoulder of a person. And a lot of that comes from my own experience of living in a body that I find is oftentimes misread uh, and misunderstood just from looking at it. So I'm really interested in making that sort of internalized experience come through with something that isn't of itself a very externalized process of painting and of, of working with the figure, working with these things that were, were used to really looking at, but using that as a way to explore looking from within. And I think that you mentioned this idea of painting hands and feet and limbs, and that's something that I oftentimes see in my work as being this clue to the fact that they're portraits of being within your own body. And I really, I understand my sense of self through these, these limbs and these hands and these feet and this is really sort of fragmented bodily experience um, 
which I think extends to this sort of fragmented sense of myself moving through the world just because it's this whole world of people that seem like they're these whole bodies that have this sort of singular outward facing personality. So it's, it's work to really try to find uh, solidarity and representation in this sort of impossible state of fragmentation. I want to probe into this question a little further of what you said about being in a body that's always being misread. What do you mean by that? I mean, there's a number of, of parts of my identity that I could point to, but for me, the earliest one was really coming to terms with my racial identity uh, because I have a black father and a white mother, but I'm very fair skinned. And I think especially, especially to white people, I read as white because I think whiteness is not familiar with the spectrum of whiteness, whereas um, in communities of color, there is more of an understanding of a lot of different forms that that takes. But so much of being a person of color in America is how you're seen by white people. And so as somebody that's oftentimes seen as white by white people, that is um, something that has shaped my sense of self, but then also an awareness of being a person of color and awareness of these microaggressions that happen when people think that they're in a room without any people of color. These are things that I am also hypersensitive to and hyper aware of. Even when I was a little kid on the playground, I mean, I grew up in LA and I feel like it was a common question for people to be like, what are you? Where are you from? Like, you know, there are a lot of um, first generation Americans at my elementary school. So people would just be like, where are you from? Where's your family from? And whenever I would say, uh, you know, my dad's black, my mom's white it was always met with like, no, you're not, <laughs> like you're not half black. And so as a kid, I remember thinking like, but I am like, how do I, how do I reconcile this? Um, and this was before I had read any theory or, you know, thought of myself as an artist or anything, but I just was a little kid trying to figure out what it was to have a black father and a white mother and be met with so much resistance and so much of uh, a sense of like, you're lying about that identity. If you're told that you're a liar for something that you are, then how can you play with these confines of identity and of categorization and naming? And then also, for me, it's really led to, to this idea of like what's at stake when we're asked to give up these categories or come up with categories that can be more inclusive or more fluid. Because something that I've come across again and again with this is this feeling of isolation that comes from from not being fully a part of any one community and also being kind of too many different things to really fully fit into that one category. And, and it's and it's then, you know, led into other aspects of my identity, whether it's queerness, um, whether it's, you know, gender, I identify as being cis, uh, cis woman. Um, now, the latest one has been motherhood, has <laughs> been a new one, find myself being sort of both and either or. And so, yeah, I think it's, I think it's opened me up to this idea that there can be sort of this excess of identity categories, but the isolation and, and sort of what's at stake to really embrace that. Okay, I want to bring Shari in here. Shari, in 1981, you and Gloria Anzaldúa edited a book called This Bridge Called My Back, which really became a, a foundational work for feminism-centering women of color. And it's a book that continues to be read so widely. What do you think uh, accounts for its endurance and its importance? Well, my, my first response to that is always, um, 
unfortunately, and then also fortunately, but unfortunately, it's still news, you know. And I say unfortunately because, you know, I feel like uh, some of the history of the movement is like where women of color were at that period of time. Everything was just burgeoning out of the other movements, the, you know, the uh, Black Power movement, Chicano Movimiento, et cetera, and also feminism, also the queer movement. So all of these things were like just, you know, cooking. I mean, beautifully, beautifully. I was very lucky to come of age at that time. Bridge was um, a response, I mean, by women of color who uh, refused to sort of choose uh, which movement was theirs, that claimed them all, basically. And uh, wherever we stood in relationship to those identities, and so, and this was pre the language of intersectionality, but it's absolutely that. And I always, of course, one always has to credit the Kumbahi River Collective for that idea that all systems of oppression are interlocking. So that's foundational. So it's been very interesting for me to sort of watch over the years how the book has continued to be read, but it also went through a kind of lag time. But also it's had a resurgence by SUNY Press, but it's had a resurgence because the times require it much more intensely now than before. So things just start to pick up again. And I'm very surprised that I've taught it now, um, really for the first time just a few years ago. I would never teach it. Those students were like so hungry for it. It was like news to them. They all could say intersectionality, but nobody knew what it meant on a certain level, that there was still a level of taking things in academically. But this was visceral. This was, I mean, I think they were kind of saying, why, why don't we get to write this way anymore? There's something about embodied practice, the body that holds information. And, and without us having the language to talk about embodied practice in 1978, you know, 79, when we started working on it, that's exactly, that's what theory in the flesh is. And that's what we were doing. We wanted stories. We wanted letters. We wanted poems. We wanted um, the the viscerality of what it means to be women of color and all those different shades and class systems and all of it. Shadi, when I mention the words, the enlightenment notion of individualism, what comes up for you? I wish, you know, the world had the privilege, you know, of being able to to find that freedom of mind and heart and, you know, that it didn't, that it wasn't exceptional to have those privileges, but it is. It's exceptional to have the privilege of um, being, even as artists, just to be individual. Let me say, because I'm talking about the Enlightenment, because the first thing I think Enlightenment, I said, well, I think that's really been also for all its so-called freedom and individuality. The end result of it to me is that this is Western thought. Western thought is individualism. And that's different than the specificity of who we are and our need to be as specific as possible so that we can then be so-called humanist, you know. And in this now, now not even humanist, but, you know, the whole cosmology of it. It is a specificity of what we know. It goes back to the body. And that then means that it is class-specific, race-specific, all of those sides of the intersectionality, Right that we understand ourselves, but that's the road to trying to then get to something that we could consider universal. You know, that's what artists do. So the idea of, of um, enlightenment, when you think about it as a movement, it was a movement for the privileged classes. Christina, what comes up for you? There's a lot of red flags that kind of go up for me when I hear things like the enlightenment or individualism. Um, 
And I, I just, I love so much uh, what you were saying about the idea of specificity, because it's something that I've come to gradually in my practice. And it's something that I, I do share with students um, when I speak with them who are, who are trying to figure out their voice and their work, this idea of specificity. And I think it's such a beautiful way that you sure were pointing out this, this distinction between the individual and, and the specificity, because I think that because of all those red flags that get pinged for me, and I think usually other people of color, other queer people who turn their back to this Western ideology, um, I think that there's this idea that to be specific would perhaps alienate a broader audience or be too opaque. But I've actually found that it's, it's when we start to fall into this more general way of speaking that actually work becomes really inaccessible. And it was only when I became really specific and really true to my experience. I was like, well, I don't know if anyone's going to understand this, but I'm just going to go ahead and go for it and try to be really specific about my experience. That's actually when it was the closest that I've been able to come to coming to this more universal way of communicating. I was very moved by what I just saw so superficially and very quickly of your work, you know, because I just thought it was a, it was dangerous, which I appreciate. So language is my form, you know, so I'm always um, in opposition with it almost. <laughs> you know, I'm always trying to find the real word as opposed to the rhetorical word. And so there's also, I think, a corollary to this in visual, in visual work, of course, right? The irony is when you were talking about if you're so specific, you don't think anybody's going to understand it or, you know, that you worry that one worries. Right. And yeah. of course, the opposite is true. You wrote that you wanted to proclaim aloud that theory can never wholly compre comprehend desire and that this is the work of poets. And I thought that was just such a such a beautiful and precise way of saying what has run through my mind for, for ages and, and how I do feel like there is this, this sort of, this, like we've been saying, this viscera, this, this embodied practice that is in art, is in poetry, is in this lived experience that, that theory can never really fully, <laughs> fully grasp, can never really fully handle. Christine, I, I kind of wanted to ask, you had mentioned earlier, you know, you're talking about, the different types of identities that you claim, but also people claim for you and how you uh, try to escape those through the act of painting. And how does that show up in, in your process and also in the work that you produce? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, it's interesting to work with, well, it's interesting to work with any medium, whether it's writing or visual um, or movement or music or anything like that, because you're working with something that is inherently legible and part of its legibility comes from being a language that sort of predates you and, and has all this baggage that comes along with it. And one of the things I really like about working with painting and working with the figure is that it has kind of so much baggage in so many ways that we are trained to see it. And so I really try to play with some of those expected forms of legibility and and I, I hope to include enough elements in the piece that can kind of hook and engage a viewer to expand the duration of looking and, and hopefully within that durational looking have 
other bits of information that come through that can contradict or undermine that initial read. And, and it, it is what drew me to making making art really was creating this sort of externalization of my experience that could be used to find language, to find solidarity, find community in something that can feel um, very lonely in a way. I guess with the last word lonely, mm. what you just said is kind of where my mind was going. And, and uh, if I wanted to ask you, do you feel you have um, a suffered because of it? It's interesting because it's, it's always both. I mean, I find that anything I answer usually has a, a sort of inherent contradiction to it. And I think that there's, there's a loneliness and a liberation in it because it is lonely, I think, to embrace that sort of specificity of self and to really, like, you know, really try to continuously kind of come out against the assumptions that people will place on you and sort of misreadings. Um, I mean, I feel like my whole life is just constantly coming out as being gay, you know, coming out as being a parent. Um, and, and yeah, it's like, I think the people that have to go through that process again and again, that, that constant having to restate who you are and have that, statement also change and be recontextualized and shift as terminology changes. I mean, I didn't grow up with the word queer being what it is today. And I think that in making work and being a person that's open to the realities of it, you can start to find community and then find that camaraderie that comes from, again, that idea of specificity somehow miraculously being this much more potent version of like a, a idea of the universal, which is maybe just as just as Western and white as the individual. Those contradictory places, like that you describe, you know, I really love that you said this. Really, that you know, it's only how it's like it's how you're seen by white people, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> which may say very little about yourself, frankly, right? You know. <laughs> But by the same token, you know, you have to walk in the world and the body and nobody, you didn't ask, you know, the powers that be, please let me be the shade, you know. But yes, there's incredible privilege in it. Right. There's no question about that. Even though in your little private self may hate it or you mm -hmm. may not hate it. I oftentimes really hate it. I really hate it sometimes because I'm not seeing the way I feel. Yeah. It's very painful for me. Really? But at the same time, we go, oh, poor Cherie, you know, she can pass as a white person. Right. I'm not that dumb politically. <laughs> I understand <laughs> that's an enormous privilege in the sense that it also has saved my life and people's lives around me. So those are the kind of very serious sort of contradictions we, we experience as we go through the day. You have one child? One child, yeah. One child, yeah. So you have a kid too. So, so yeah. you know, all of these kind of questions about how you teach them the world mm -hmm. you know, is really challenging in that way yeah. because we do suffer, you know, but one suffers in the context of, of you know, all these, is for lack of a better word again, all the structural suffering. Right, exactly. And our bodies move in, in, in and out of it, you know. 
Christina, if I may, I wanted to point out for our audience that you and your wife just recently became mothers. And I'm curious how being the non-biological mother plays into your sense of identity. It's something that comes in and out of focus of being more important or less important. Um, And it's something, I think more than anything, it, it has less to do with my understanding of my relationship with my daughter and much more my understanding and relationship with my feminism and, and being a woman and, and working as a, as a working mother, um, but as a working mother that didn't have to contend with being pregnant, going through labor, uh, having to breastfeed. Um, but it's just, it's an interesting thing to experience just the profound patriarchy and misogyny that's inherent in childbearing, um, certainly in the, in the United States, and to have been able to experience all the specificity of being a mother and, and yet not have had to deal with that sort of biological burden of being a new parent. It's been an interesting thing and one that, and one that has been far less alienating than I thought it would be going into it. I remember I had all these concerns before her daughter was born. Like, will she feel like she's mine? Or will I feel like this sort of outside of my own family? Uh, and as soon as she was born, it all just went away. It all just disappeared, all those concerns. As I realized the thing that hadn't occurred to me, which is that she would also just be an individual, that she was her own person. And, um, and that that was something that, my wife and I would both be a part of and separate from always. And that that's actually a very beautiful thing about children. Shadi wrote Waiting in the Wings, what, 25 years ago now? About becoming a queer mother at the age of 40. And it's a pioneering work. And I guess I'm wondering, Shadi, like as you're listening to Christina, what does this bring up for you? What kinds of memories and uh, what kinds of differences maybe in your experiences does it bring up for you? My experience was so different. I, I had my son, you know, biologically. And, uh, and the book is actually very much impacted by that. By, he was born very premature. And so I sometimes talk about the book as, as and, and about my son at that time as being a, a kind of messenger. But in the sense that, that it was, um, uh, he was in the hospital three and a half months because he, he, he was born premature. So those three and a half months completely changed my life. And uh, and the book is much is actually also kind of goes through that period, but it's really the proximity of the creativity of giving birth and and motherhood and all of that process, which was to me really um, wonderful until I almost lost him. And so then to have the juxtaposition of of death, the question of death. There was two surgeries, et cetera. He's fine now, um, thirty years. He's fine. Um, but that proximity changed my whole life. You know, I left my relationship. She was great with him at that time. And, but I knew after that I had to walk in the world with somebody who, and I say this in a really positive way, somebody who knew death. I needed, I needed someone who had my back that way because I am looking at it so straight up. This is your child and you could lose that child. And so to me, you know, I always say, you know, um, and in this book, my, my son actually wrote an end note for it, which I was so surprised he was willing to do. And I, when I read his afterward, I go, 
well, this book has nothing to do with him. It's all about me. <laughs> you know, it is. It's all about me. It's it's my queer motherhood. It was my queer motherhood and the and the people that, you know, both my relationship to my blood family, but also the birth of the of the birth of queer mothering, making queer familia. So the things that came after that book, like Chicana Codex, and then when my mother passed, Native Country of the Heart, is like everything is about to me was kind of to announce its queer familia, you know, our queer families and how we make family and how we walk in the world with that family. I really have found that one of the, again, it's that combination of something that's painful and difficult, but also you get to make your own way. And and there is a lot of agency in moving through a world that's not designed to facilitate who you are, I think that that allows for you to find different pathways and and actually make something that is really supportive for you that wouldn't have happened if you just kind of were moving along and going through the motions of living a life. Um, And I found that with our daughter, I mean, there were even things at the beginning of our decision when we were starting to realize that my wife probably would carry our child and my wife is white and I've always felt this sense of isolation as a multiracial person because there's black family members and white family members. And so it was really important for us to have a mixed race child. And then uh, when our daughter was born, I mean, we've really been embracing this idea of a queer family unit with my wife and I um, and our daughter. But then we also have our friend who's a gay man who's pretty much moved in with us uh, the moment that our daughter was born because it was a very difficult labor that my wife had. Um, and we really needed a lot of care. And he's a chef and our daughter was born during the pandemic. So all of his chef gigs were canceled. And it's just interesting to experience this role of sort of domestic labor being taken on by a gay man while I'm going into the office almost every day. I mean, my office is a studio, but still going into to work all day um, and then having the sort of like male domestic partnership that's a non-romantic, but very much a familial relationship. Um, and so it's like you get to actually create a family unit that is genuinely supportive and one that can can actually be caring because it doesn't have to be this cookie cutter motherhood. <laughs> it can be one that actually has a, a sharing of responsibilities that we get to write our own rules for what that is. Um, and it's, it's something that I find really meaningful to being a parent. We're living in a, a time of massive expansion in terms of the way that identities are perceived. And some have even said that we're living in an age of identity. But at the same time, there's, there's, a, there's a backlash against identity. What does it mean for, for the both of you as artists to be making works in this time? I think that there's, there's this great potential for sort of having this ongoing draft of how we see ourselves. Um, something that, that I see right now with this, this tendency to assert who we are and kind of project that out. I mean, I think we were talking earlier in this conversation about how there's this negotiation as artists that we have with our body, with our media, with the language that we have, and then what we're trying to get across. And it's always this negotiation. And I think that getting to know ourselves as well as this, this ongoing negotiation between who we are and the world around us and how that world continues to shift and change. And I see now this sort of, it's almost this, 
idea that you could somehow, because we have all of these different identity categories available to us, that we could just proclaim who we are and that's it. <laughs> we could just kind of have that be the end all be all for all time. And if you get it wrong in 20 years, we're going to like go back and, and cancel that, that language. And it's like language needs to be the sort of drafting and this, this idea of ourself is like this, these earlier drafts that we move forward with. And I think right now we're in this, such this polarizing time of people being so afraid of, of language and, you know, don't say gay and don't intersectionality, don't talk about critical race theory. It's like all these things about not using language. And then on the other side, it's this idea that if we were to somehow declare who we are, uh, use enough descriptive language in our Instagram profile, that that somehow could be enough for all time. And I think that the, the fear I have is that it's too much of a battle between these two sides of sort of the same coin, which is that there needs to be this ongoing drafting of language and understanding of ourselves because we change, our world changes, the context changes, and we have to have that not be written in stone. It has to be something that can be written and rewritten and redrafted and crossed out and gone back to again and again. You know, looking back 40 years, you know, some of the earliest writing was 40 years ago for Loving the War Years, and then how times have changed, et cetera. And what I said in that that intro part is that is on a certain level, I was sad because I felt like we were allowed to be braver then. I guess what I just want to say kind of clearly is just that I just feel like it is harder to write that way now because of the times and also because there is so much language that was supposed to be opening us and in fact has turned so categorical that it's just what you said, Aurel, I'll need to repeat it, that people do worry about being misinterpreted, right? So even if you look at Loving in the War Years, there are tons and tons of notes, right? Like end notes to contextualize the times. I even use the word Chicano with an O because that's what we said then. And when I mean Chicana, I mean a woman, right? So it's like trying to contextualize the times because if you don't contextualize the times correctly, it can be misinterpreted as wrong or you change it and people don't have a sense of the history. They don't get the sense of the evolution of our ideas. It's important that I felt alienated from a Chicano movement as a queer person and as a female, right? Bomb, bomb, bomb in the, in the relationship to trans and gender identities, things that I was very unaware of. I didn't look back at, at being butch. I didn't look at that necessarily as... I mean, I knew it was gender, but I thought after I came out, well, everything's cool, right? But it was equally, for me, about gender and sexuality. But at that time, I didn't have that language. Well, yes, so that language has been enormously useful, right? And not just for me, in general, it's been enormously useful. So that's what we're doing. We're in this evolutionary path, but we pick language up and, and let it go as it's ceasing to function. But we got to keep having a historical perspective on it, right? I do worry now more than ever when I'm writing. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm getting straighter, you know? <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like, and I'm really not, like, I have to really work against it. I really, really work against it. But I'm telling you, it's harder on a certain level because of that, also because we didn't have social media in those times. Before I let you go, 
both of you seem to be critical of this received idea of individualism. Christina, how do you want your daughter to experience individualism? I think it is this idea of uh, of the real genuine liberation, of real freedom, and this idea of compassion being something that is in the self, but also has such a such an implication of another uh, or set of others, um, and such a sense of care with it, that, that a care that's not careful. And I think that that would be a place that I hope exists, you know, when she's a teenager, when she's a young adult, when she's doing whatever it is she's finding interesting, finding passion in, would be that sense of, of tapping into a genuine sense of self, a genuine sort of rhythm that can be expressed and shared and felt by other people. I mean, that's the thing when you can really tap into that, it's something that is so specific, but so connecting. Um, and it's when you can find that and it sometimes only lasts for like a second, but it's like, it's that moment that feels very, um, joyful because you feel like you're being true to yourself, but also very much in conversation. Uh, and, and I think tapping into that is something that I hope is, is picked up on in generations to come. I think every generation has that. I hope, I guess, that there's time and space to have thoughtful connection because I think that in and of itself is a privilege that presumes a sense of safety and care and well-being in your life that can allow for these sort of larger expanses of thinking. So I guess I, I hope that she's in a world where needs are met, that she can have these contemplations. Thank you both for being here. I'm Jeff Chang, and you've been on a journey to the edge of reason. Join us next week when we speak to the artist Thomas J. Price and cognitive psychologist Steven Pinker to explore how ideas around progress shape the passion and purpose of their work. If you've enjoyed what you've just heard, like and review on Apple Podcast and help spread the word about our series to other listeners like you.